For the past few weeks, we've looked at a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We saw how Nicodemus had a hard time understanding some of the concepts that he came asking about to Jesus. Specifically, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the working of the Holy Spirit in regarding coming to Christ. This morning, we pick up in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3, verse 22. And we're going to look at a character we first saw introduced in chapter 1 that we might have forgotten about. It seemed like this character wasn't going to come back into the story, but here he shows up again. His name was John the Baptist. Would you mind praying with me as we begin? God, we thank you for this morning. May you give me the words to say. God, may you be glorified and lifted up. God, may your word be proclaimed in such a way that brings you honor, praise, and glory to you and you alone. God, may you use me for the glorification of yourself. God, give us ears to hear your word and the power of your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you turn with me, verse 22. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So we see Jesus go, And he's overseeing baptism happen with his disciples. And we know that Jesus himself was not baptizing. We see that in John chapter 4 verse 2. It says Jesus was not baptizing himself, but he was overseeing baptism. This was probably for a number of reasons. We we all can imagine how a conversation would go if you had been baptized by Jesus, right? I mean, we all have heard the conversation where someone thinks they have bragging rights by like, oh, well, I... I'm, I'm good friends with that celebrity, or they're a cousin of mine. Well, can you imagine if somebody had been baptized by Jesus? They can say, oh, hey, I, I heard you just got baptized, and they're really excited about it. Let me tell you about a real baptism. I got baptized by Jesus himself. So Jesus didn't want any of that. We see a similar attitude to Paul, where Paul over in 1 Corinthians says, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. And so Paul was staying away from that. We see Jesus staying away from that as well. Move to verse 23. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So we see in verse 23 that in another area, John was baptizing. So Jesus is baptizing over here and his disciples, right? So people are going to Jesus. And then a short distance away, we see John the Baptist. He's also baptizing. On a small note here, I love how Scripture clearly says why John decided to go baptize over there. What does it say, church? Because water was plentiful there. So if you have any doubts about the method of baptism, this is a strong indication for me why we believe in submersion for baptism because you don't need a lot of water to sprinkle. You need a lot of water to baptize, to submerge. And so that's why here at this church we believe in baptism through submersion. And so baptism is symbolic. When we're talking about baptism here, we might be thinking of what we talk about baptism today. It's symbolic of a nature we have with Christ. Like my wedding ring symbolizes my marriage commitment to my wife. Baptism represents who Christ is, his death, burial, and resurrection. 
But that's not what we're going to see this baptism was about. So I want to recap the picture. There's two groups of people. Those going to Jesus, his disciples are baptizing. And then also those going to John the Baptist. And then verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Purification. What does baptism have to do with purification? Well, today when we think of baptism, we might have think of that symbolism, that symbolic relationship. We have a baptism coming up in our church that if you're interested in being baptized or have never been baptized, I encourage you to pursue that. But baptism is you identifying with Christ. When I was baptized, I was baptized in front of a group of believers. And I was saying, just like I did with my wife, I'm marrying this person. I'm making a commitment to them. I'm identifying with them. And when we do that in baptism, it's identifying with Christ's life. And then we're put under the water. We're identifying with his death. And then we come out of the water. We're identifying now with new birth, being resurrected. But that's not purification, Because we don't believe that baptism today is for purification. Baptism does not wash away sins. Belief in Christ, faith in Christ is what washes away sins. That's what we teach here at Family Church. That's what we see in God's Word. So we see here purification. Well, where did this come from? Well, in this day, baptism actually didn't begin with believers. It actually went back because there were people being baptized before the time of Christ. Baptism was used as a cleansing ritual for Gentiles. You see, the Jewish people were the clean people. The Gentile people were the unclean people. And so Gentiles were going and being baptized as symbolic of needing to be cleaned. John the Baptist came along and said, listen, all of you got it wrong. All of you are unclean. Everybody, not just the Gentile people. So he took this ritual of baptism and applied it to everybody. And he came, and he, he came saying, repent, everybody, for the kingdom of God is near. The coming Messiah is coming. Repent. Everybody repent. This is why in the Gospels, we see the Pharisees come up, and they see John the Baptist, and they have their arms crossed because they disapprove of what he's doing. Because Jewish people and Gentile people were being baptized together in the same waters. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were against that. And John the Baptist is saying, listen, everybody is unclean. So this baptism was one of repentance. So they came here thinking, well, what is going on, John? And then here's a guess of what the problem was, this discussion, this dispute. People were going and being baptized by John the Baptist. And then they were probably going and being baptized by Jesus. They were going and getting double dipped, right? We've heard it before. Right? So they're going and they're like, hey, if this is good, this, this is good too. Let's go do this in case. So the discussion might have been, which is better? John the Baptist, we know he's from God, or Jesus? John the Baptist said he was better, so should we do both or just one? Let's move to verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he, Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, Jesus is baptizing as well. And here's the problem that they came to to John the Baptist. All are going to him. They came to John. John's whole life had been centered on this message he was preaching. He gathered around, tons of people around him, and they were being baptized. 
But then they realized it was so obvious that everybody was leaving John the Baptist and they were going to Jesus. John's response is incredible. It's going to be the focus of our time this morning. And I want us to see in this conversation between John the Baptist that we see here, everything we originally saw with Nicodemus is reversed. Where Nicodemus got it wrong, John the Baptist gets it right. Where Nicodemus came, he said, hey, I know you're from God, but who are you exactly? John the Baptist said he is of God. He is God, and I'll tell you who he is and who I am in response to that. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Clear sovereignty of God. A person cannot receive anything. So they're saying, hey, everybody's going over to to Jesus. What are you going to do about it, John? And, And John's response is, everything that has been given has been given from God. Otherwise, it would not have happened. He clearly understood the sovereignty of God in salvation. Verse 27, we see him affirm that. But secondly, Nicodemus came asking the question. He came and he said to Jesus, hey, we know you're from God, but who are you exactly? John the Baptist knows who Christ is, and he, set, he says it. Nicodemus came asking questions. John the Baptist is answering questions. He answers this in verse 28. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John goes on to explain who Christ is. Verse 29, if you're following along, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. How does John feel about them all leaving him and being and going to Jesus Christ? Excited, thrilled, overjoyed. I want us to take a little bit of time this morning and look at that. I want us to understand a lot of us have our identity wrapped up in things. It could be a relationship, marriage, job, position, financial status. A thousand things our identity is wrapped up in. John's identity, his whole purpose in life, we find in the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. In John 1.23, John the Baptist said this of himself. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is saying, my whole purpose in life, my whole identity in life is to go before the Messiah and prepare things for his coming. John was the voice crying out. John's whole purpose was to be that voice. But then we see in verse 29. Look in verse 29. There's two words that should perk our ears. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and what, church? Hears. Here's him. But remember, who's the voice? John the Baptist. But then he's saying, listen, I'm just, the, I'm just the best man here at this wedding. And I'm standing by and I hear another voice. 
The one who stands by and hears him, who hears the Messiah, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So John understood his purpose was to be the voice until he heard a greater voice, right? And when Jesus showed up on the scene, that's why we see him say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he cries out because that's the voice I've been waiting to see. And so when the Messiah came, John was excited because his whole purpose in life was built on Christ. What voice was this that John the Baptist heard? Well, it's the same voice we might have experienced in our life. John 5.25. You look just a couple of pages over in your Bible. John 5.25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. Has that happened to you, church? That you heard the voice of God? may not be an audible voice, but a knowing deep within your soul or your mind. You know. You know who God is. You can't get rid of that. And if you've heard the voice of God, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Scripture says you went from death, exactly what it's saying here, to life. That is the power of this voice that John was referring to. In John 11, when he had said these things, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And what happened? A man who was dead rose from the grave, from the voice of God. The Gospels show that Jesus' voice has the power to command armies. He said, if this was my world and this was my battle, a single command I could give and legions of angels would come and do my bidding, right? So his voice commands armies. His voice raises the dead to life. In Revelations 19, it says, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is faithful and true. In righteousness... He judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his heads are many crowns. And he has a name written no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and its name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, symbolic The word of God, powerful. What does he do with this sharp sword from his mouth? He uses it to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The voice of God is the one that created the world. It has the power of death and life. Commands armies. Everything in the world, Scripture says, is sustained by the Word of God. That is the voice that our life should be about. That's the voice John the Baptist's life was about. And soon, John's life, he was in the position of power. He was in the position of prominence. Everyone was coming to him. And now it was so clear that everybody was leaving him going to John. They were coming to him and saying, What is going on? What are you going to do? Everything you've worked for in this life is fading away. And it was happening so rapidly that people saw it happening. And they came to him and said, what's going on? Are the things you've been talking about not important? And John is trying to teach them. 
if this is happening, it's from God. He says, I've already told you I'm not the Christ. I came before him. John says, I don't want to compete with that. I can't compete with that. It's all about Christ. John gives us the picture of a wedding. Verse 29. Would you look in verse 29 with me of John 3? It says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. This word bride represents the church, us, the people of God. So John is saying, listen, if I don't have the bride, I'm not the Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's the groom. Since I don't have all these people around me, that's, that's the right thing that should be happening. They're all going to him. He gives us this picture of a wedding. And then John says this about himself. And I want us to ask the question this morning of us. Is this the position we're in? John was the best man at the wedding. He had spent his whole life preparing for the wedding, for this feast. You know how much planning and effort a wedding takes, right? All of this work and effort and planning and preparation and gathering people around himself. John was doing all of that. And then the groom shows up. And everybody leaves him. All the work he's done is happening over there. The wedding is happening over there. The camera's flashing over there. I love how John Piper says this in regards to this picture of this wedding with John the Baptist. He says the rice is all flying in that direction. The honeymoon is in that direction. And nobody glances back at the silenced voice sitting on the church steps. The voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the shepherd, has replaced the voice that was crying out in the wilderness of John the Baptist. And in a few months, the sword of Herod that we know from Scripture will absolutely silence John's voice. And John's response to all of this, John's response to being from the greatest to the least, to being diminished, what is his response? Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, the world would see fame and glory and honor and power leaving you as being the opposite of joy. But John is saying, my joy is completed when all of these things are leaving me. And it leads us to our first point this morning. Our joy as believers is found in the exaltation of Jesus. That's what our life should be about. Our life should center around, circle around, exalting Jesus Christ. How can John be so happy when his life is falling apart, it seems? Because his life was falling apart for the very purpose he planned it for, for Christ himself. He prepared for this wedding that was happening. The world sees this and they don't understand it, but we as Christians should understand it. This is the Christian life. So how does this mindset happen? Listen, I was not looking for this mindset, all right? I was not looking, how can my life be all about other people and, and somebody else rather than me? You probably weren't looking for that either. How can I make my whole life not wrapped up about me? I wasn't looking for that. It showed up in my life, and when it showed up in my life, I submitted to it. It's called being raised from death to life. It's called being born again. It's called being saved, made alive in Christ. 
It's called having our sins washed away. It's called being adopted into God's family. We weren't looking for these things. They showed up in our life, and when they did, we had to do something with them. My life before Christ was representative of this chair, as was all of yours. Whoever sits in this chair in your life makes all the decisions. This is a comfortable chair. This is the throne of your life. And before you're a follower of Christ, you sit in this chair, and the chair swivels, right? You can look at whatever you want to look at. You can do whatever you want to do because you're sitting in the position of power. And so this is my life, my marriage. I did some things. I served my wife, but really my marriage is, is largely for me, what I can get out of it. My job, my finances were mine. My stuff was mine. I was advancing me, my life. And then what happens is I came into conflict I was confronted with my sin. I understood my sinfulness in a capacity I had never understood before. Specifically in my life, God spoke to me, and it was in the depths of my soul that I knew I had broken God's law. And I, I, I just had this conversation within myself and the Lord of, I knew a lot about God, but I didn't know him personally. And I knew it. And he knew it. Everybody knew it in the room. And when his word came into my life, and I understood my sinfulness, it compels us. It should compel us to jump out of this chair, because this is not my chair. It's like sitting in the boss's chair, and the boss walks in the room, right? And you didn't think he was going to be back. He was out on vacation. You jump out of the chair, but this is God we're talking about. And, and so I jump out of this chair, and I say, this is your, your chair. I'm pledging my allegiance to you, my king, my savior. This is, what, this is what the Christian life should look like now that, because before, this is, a, this is important to me and this is important and this is not that important. But when I get out of this chair and I have Christ come and sit inside of it, everything in my life should be wrapped around this. Now, this mindset, who wants that? I mean, if you would have came to me and said, hey, how would you like for your life to be about everything but you. It's not a very popular message. <laughs> How about you make your life all about God? All your stuff you're going to say is not yours. All your time is not really your time. It's all God's time. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I know it doesn't make sense. Luke, Luke said this morning for sitting in here for worship practice, he said, you know, what we do at church really doesn't make a lot of sense to the world. We come together and we sing songs together and we read together, and we challenge each other like we're challenging things. It's all because of what Christ has done in our life. But that's not all that John said. He said, this joy of mine is now complete. And then he says this, he must increase. And everybody's good with that. Until he says the second thing. What does he say? He must increase, and I must decrease. It's not he must increase and maybe I will decrease. It's both. He must and I must. And this is where even in the church we see the most pushback. 
Because everybody says, hey, I'm fine with God being exalted. I'm fine with God being glorified. But why do I have to be put down into a lower position? Why can't I stay the same? Why can't it be like, all right, God has increased and I stay the same? Because that's not what Jesus teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what John the Baptist is teaching. He must increase and I must decrease. And a lot of times, people in the church, we do this. I want some God in my life. God, come over here. I, I like some of the things you're saying. Here, come over, to, come over to my kingdom. And we invite God over. And, and we have him sit to where we just kind of incorporate God. It's a Sunday morning thing you can have this day. I don't really mean this day. I just mean this hour. And I don't really mean that hour. I mean when I feel like going. Right? I mean, we, or we say, hey, I'll even share some of the spot with you. And we try to squeeze God into the chair. I mean, how insulting would that be? If we really understood who God is, we kind of squeeze him in or, or have him sit at our feet. But we really don't give him the position that he deserves in our life. And all of us, in a sense, do some of those things. But there's a mindset in the church today that, well, we're all living that way. And he can be our savior but he doesn't have to be our Lord. And that is a false concept we don't see in Scripture. He is our Savior and our Lord. He's not just one. He's both. Whether we recognize it or not, he is Savior and Lord, and we should submit to him as both. Now, there are areas of my life where I'm still sitting in the chair. I understand that. But when God brings about conviction in my life for those areas, I better jump off that chair. And so should you. We jump off the chair because he is worthy of that. Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insert, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of my name. If I'm seated in, seated in the chair, I'm not going to rejoice when people make fun of me or persecute me because I'm in the chair. But if I'm kneeling to the throne, I'm willing to go through whatever it takes for him to be glorified, not myself. Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of what? Suffering. Disgrace for the name Jesus Christ. Counted worthy. Listen, I'm not going to count it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ if I'm in the throne of my life. But we can do that when we've submitted to Christ and he's on the throne of our life. There's a picture here I want to share made famous by recent tragic events that I'm sure all of you have seen before. I can tell you, these men were not seated on the throne of their life. Because if they were seated on the throne of their life, they would not have confessed to be Christ followers. They would have changed. They would have changed to something else. They would have blended in. They would have switched. But they were willing to go through even death because of their identification of glorifying God, even in the midst of a horrific Death. Their joy 
was not found in themselves. It was found by giving praise and honor to their king. Their joy was found in the glorification of Christ. Listen, a true believer cannot renounce Christ and reject Jesus Christ as their Savior and have joy. They will have brokenness and a, and a hurt heart. We see that in Peter. Peter renounced Christ and what did he do? He wept bitterly. Listen, us as believers, we can't sin in our life and not have conviction. We should have conviction because he is our king and we're hurting our relationship with him. But so many times we sit on the throne of our life and we say, this is not where you want. I don't, I don't want you here, so I'm going to do this. I want to share, just recently I read a story of where one of the, one of the fighters of ISIS stated that he used to enjoy killing Christians. But he began having dreams of a man clothed in white who came to him and said, you are killing my people. The fighter said that after that, he started to feel really sick and uneasy about what he was doing. The fighter said that just before he killed a Christian, the man said, I know you're going to kill me, but I want you to have my Bible. The man was killed. He took his Bible. He started reading it. became a follower of Christ. So he's over there now, secret church, trying to do ministry. What happens in somebody's life to go from that to willing to be in that position? What happened in your life? What happened in my life that I'm willing to say, I'm willing to give it all up for Christ. I'm willing to give up everything for Christ. I can tell you, and I think you would agree with me, I'm willing to lay down my life for my wife. No doubt. I'm willing to lay down my life for my children. Without a doubt. And I think you would too. If we're willing to lay down our lives for our family, it should be easy to do for God. And I think many of us would. But if we're willing to lay down our lives, I want to ask the question, because this is not just a he may increase, I may decrease talking about life. This is not just talking about life or death. I want us to talk about the everyday decisions of life. What about pride in your life? Thinking better of yourself than someone else. Are you willing to lay that down? Because this is where like, things get really hard. Hypothetically, we talk about, I'm willing to lay down my life for Christ. Somebody put a gun to my head. Sure, I would do that. But what about pursuing to be right when we're in an argument? What about those little daily things that, that creep up where who's seated in this throne? I'm going to be right in this debate. I'm going to be right in this argument. I want lunch my way. I want to go this place. I don't want to submit there. I don't want to obey. I don't want to do my best when I could get away with doing something different. I mean, there's all these everyday decisions that we make. But I want us to question, are we allowing Christ to be seated in the position of prominence in the daily decisions, how we treat our spouse? Do we treat them the way Christ calls us to treat them? Pursuing, accumulating wealth, 
Are we doing it for us or for God's glory? Who's on the throne in our relationships? Who's on the throne in our desires? When you have a desire and I have a desire, does that desire always come to fruition? Even if it's a sinful one? Most of the time, do I do those things? Because if I do, that means I'm seated on the throne. What about our possessions? Our time? Our service? Even when we come to church, who are we coming to church for? Those are questions that when Jesus says, and John the Baptist says, you can only have one master, you can't serve both, or he must increase and I must decrease. He's not just talking about the big things of life. He's talking about the everyday decisions that really make up the most of what life is. So this is a tough challenge for us. Maybe some of us, I hope all of us, are feeling convicted about areas where we're seated on the throne. I know I am. And I want us to see that even that conviction is a blessing of God. Because we don't even have to feel conviction about things. Listen, if you're feeling conviction about something in your life, maybe you're not even a believer and you know you need to be. Maybe you're a believer and you know there's some areas where you are saying this is my spot and you're being convicted about it. Or spots where you kick him out and you sit in there. Listen, if you're receiving conviction, that means that God is wanting to do something in your life. God doesn't discipline those he doesn't love. So even us receiving conviction about things means God wants to bring you back to himself. How glorifying and how beautiful is that? That God would do that to us. What a perfect loving God we have that he even comes alongside of us. Even though he should do it wrathfully, he gently nudges us in areas where if I was the king, I could tell you I wouldn't be that nice, right? Or gentle about it. Somebody's sitting in my spot. Listen, when we've been adopted into God's family as legitimate sons or daughters, when our sins have been washed away, when we've been made new, when we're able to worship and sing that we have been clothed in his righteousness that he has given to us, it should change how we function in life. This is how our pleasure receptors and our pain receptors get switched to where we're willing to do that type of stuff for our Savior, for our King. Some may hear the message and say, that's not the God I want. I don't want my life to be about everybody else but me. That's where all of us were at one point. I understand that. We see this in John 6, 6, 6, where it says, Jesus said a hard saying to these group of people. There was a large group of people following Christ, and he said some tough things. And then it says this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned to the 12, his disciples, and said, are you going to leave me too? And I love their response. I pray that it's our response. Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's nowhere else to go. That's the right response. Listen, what am I going to do? Reject Christ for my life? Where am I going to go after that? That's, he's the end of the road for us who have experienced rebirth. I can't get made more alive than I already am. And so what it means to be 
a Christ follower is we're dying to self. Always. We're dying to self. Point number two, or the second part of this, our joy is found in the exaltation of Jesus and in dying to self. Dying to self. It's a both and, not one or the other. I'm going to exalt Christ. He's worth it all. And in the same motion, I'm going to realize my life is only given to me for him. My joy is no longer associated about me. It's associated about him. Recently, I watched, maybe many of you did too, the Republican debates where there's 16 candidates. I want to I share why this both and has to go on. There's 16 candidates. If one of those candidates really believed somebody else could do the job better in every form and fashion, and they loved the country, if they realized that, and they backed out, and they told all their supporters, and it wasn't because they were just doing bad in the polls, right, which is typically what happens, but somebody said, listen, this guy can do it better in every way than I can. Every way. And he drops out. That means the spotlight's going to shine more on the other guy. That's what it means in our life as Christians. We can't both be in the spotlight and expect Christ to receive as much glory as he could. We have to drop out and see our life for his purposes. Heart check for us this morning. A heart check for you. Listen, I want you to know you're getting a heart check for an hour. Okay? You don't know it, but God has us in the position of pastors because we need to have a heart check for seven days beforehand. Seven days of the week. That's, that's what has ha- been happening in my life. You get it for an hour. I need it 24-7. Okay? So this, these are things that I've been struggling with, but here's some heart checks for us. This is what our attitude should be. I don't have to serve others because I'm a Christian. I get to serve them for the sake of honoring my king. I don't have to. I get to. If we don't love serving others, it's maybe because we don't understand how much Christ serves us on a daily basis. Jesus Christ came to serve us, not to be served. I want to ask, church, I don't care how old you are or how young you are, but when was the last time that you remember yourself serving in the church in a role of responsibility, serving others? If you don't know when, I want you to ask yourself, why? Because we may be seated in the throne of our life. I don't have to love my spouse. I get to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I get to love my spouse. It is a privilege. Christ is not asking anything of me or anything of you to do to your spouse that he has not already shown you. Died for you. Loved perfectly. And he asks us, we get to love our spouse. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. Christ calls us the beloved because he loves us. He cares for us. I get to come here alongside of brothers and sisters who love me enough to call out sin when they see it. They love me. I get to be here. I get to come alongside and hear other people worshiping God and it encourages my soul. I get to be in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ who love me and pray for me and encourage me. 
I shared it in membership class two weeks ago, but never forget, we, Amanda and I, made a, a meal for someone in the church. We spent a long time making this meal. We wanted to just bless this other couple. And we spent hours making the meal, and we took it to them and dropped it off at their home. And then we got home, and we were so excited. And the problem was, it's past dinner time now. And we didn't have anything to eat. And so we were thinking, well, what are we going to eat? We just did this. And there was a, a knock at our door, and another family spontaneously brought us a meal. And it, and it was the most wonderful moment of realizing what a church is, that we can do these things, give and receive. And it was far better to have given and received than to have just made a meal ourselves. That's what it means to be part of a church. I don't get to worship, or I don't have to worship, I get to worship. And I want us to see when we come together to worship that we are entering into a song of worship that is happening right now in eternity. Our family members who are Christians who have gone before us are worshiping God right now and we're joining in with their song. And we're joining in with all of the saints of the Bible, the men that God has used. We're joining in with them, worshiping God. So it's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. We're part of that choir. I don't have to go to communion. I get to be along brothers and sisters in Christ, celebrating the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a get to. Why do we do these things? Something I think we can all associate with. We've all heard in life, there's a bachelor or bachelorette, and they praise, right? They praise being single. They praise not having a ball or chain, that I can do what I want when I want, right? We've all heard somebody talk about the single life and how they don't have any strings attached. They hear of drama and they say, I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. And then what happens? They meet someone they think is incredible, right? We've all had this. We, we talk up to all our guy friends how awesome single life is. And then the next moment we meet someone and it doesn't even take months or weeks or days. It takes minutes. Minutes. And all of a sudden, I'm willing to endure drama. I'm willing to be part of drama. I'm willing to, I don't, I'm not worried about that anymore. Who cares about basketball? I mean, all these things that I once, like, set aside as priority number one, priority number two. I don't even have priorities anymore except for this girl. I mean, we've seen this. This is, this is a microcosm of what happens with Christ, that he steps into our life and everything we once thought was important all of a sudden doesn't matter anymore. And our life is wrapped up in Christ because of what he's done for us. I can't get out of my mind why Christ would save me. And it fuels what I do. I can't get out of my mind why he would love me. But he does and he loves you. Why would he do it? I don't know, but he does. I can't get that out of my mind. I can't get out of my mind some of the things he's done for me, the promises he's given for me. I can't get these things out of my mind. So it transforms my life to where I want to serve him. And when I don't and I realize it, it should break my heart and I want to do things differently. This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. John's life the crescendo of his life, the building up of his life was to exalt Christ. 
I want to ask you, church, what is your life building up to? What does the crescendo of your life look like? If we took the trajectory that you're going right now, what you're working for, what you're thinking about, what is the crescendo of your life look like? Is retirement, golf, relaxing, accumulated wealth, family, grandchildren? I can tell you that there is no greater life than a life centered on Jesus Christ and the things of eternity. A million years from now, that is the only thing that is going to matter. And it's all fueled by this relationship that we have from what he's done for us. I hope you know the promises of God. Listen, if you're here this morning, you're not even sure if you're a believer. You You've heard these things and you've never heard them presented like this before and you're feeling that God wants you to do something. Come talk with me afterwards and I can show you what God has done for you. Maybe you're a believer and you've been convicted of some areas where you're seated on the throne. Listen, Jesus Christ intercedes with you, for you, to the Father. Repent between you and Him and turn away and live your life in a way that honors and glorifies Him. Church, all of this is for Jesus Christ. May our joy be made complete in the exaltation of Christ as we die to ourselves in this glorious march we all take towards eternity. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, the power of your word that is sharp and it convicts and it confronts And it cuts through errors. It cuts through wrong thinking. God, I pray for us as a church. God, there's all areas where we're seated on the throne. God, break us of these areas. We want to be sold out for you. Help us to see our time for you. Help us to realize that church is so we can serve others. God, I pray that we become a church where we never have problems getting people to serve. God, I thank you that you allow us to have things, even though we claim them as ours. God, help us to love you as you've loved us. God, I pray if anyone in here doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that they may cry out to you today and receive your gift of salvation. God, I thank you. I don't understand why you love me, But I thank you for doing it, and I give you honor and praise. We thank you for this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.